Please. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get, uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studio, Nelson George. A multimedia force who, for more than 40 years, has excelled as a music journalist, author, television producer, and filmmaker. Through nonfiction and fiction, documentaries, and entertainment, his expansive work has illuminated the African-American experience, particularly as it pertains to music, including soul, funk, and hip-hop. In that regard, his career includes serving as music editor for the now-defunct record world, and then in the same capacity for Billboard magazine from 1982 to 1989. His music-oriented books include Where Did Our Love Go? The Rise and Fall of the Motown Sound, The Death of Rhythm, Rhythm and Blues, Hip Hop America, and The Hippest Trip in America, Soul Train, and the Evolution of Culture and Style. As well, he worked with recent Truth and Rhythm guest Alan Leeds on the James Brown Reader. Additionally, his TV work includes VH1's Hip Hop Honors, a ballerina's tale, finding the funk, and he has most recently been crafting a great name hip hop revisited, as well as a Tupac Shakur documentary. And in film, among the other things, he's produced a, the rap comedy classic CB4. Nelson, how you doing? So glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Good, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you had Alan Leeds on, so I'm a good, I'm a good company. Yeah, yeah, he was a, a good time on here, uh, and he's got the brand new book out. So yeah, yeah, and I'm so happy. I mean, Alan has been a friend since uh, his days with Prince, mm -hmm. and uh, he's been working on that that particular book for a long time. So I'm so pleased that it's out there and people are really responding to it. Yeah, what an amazing life he's led, huh? Oh my God, <laughs> he's been there and uh, seen that, done that, and uh, 
also has the capacity to, to, to tell what he saw. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, a lot of folks have been there but can't really explain what it was. He, he really can. That's a good point. Or, yeah, they've done too many things and they can't recollect it all. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Nelson, where are you coming to us from today? I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm staying with my girlfriend here in Brooklyn. Um, we, uh, you know, I was in L.A., uh, but uh, yeah, I'm a Brooklynite, and my family is all on this coast. So it's been uh, really easier to be here. Uh, just even just even though we're separated, quote unquote, social distancing, just to be in the same coast in terms of phone calls. I got family in Virginia. I got family. Uh, all over the coast and you know there's been some illnesses so you know it's been easy to be be active and be it's been better to be here than be you know four hours away yeah well be a few weeks before this airs and we all pray that you know things are a lot better by then yeah absolutely yeah Uh, you know i mean we we had the some good news here the last couple of days in new york that the the amount of fatalities has dropped the last two days i mean you know it's been on a decline so we're hoping I think I'm saying the peak would be toward the end of April here, but it looks like maybe we're lucky. Um, it'll happen earlier. Um, so, you know, everyone's got their fingers crossed here. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I am a New Yorker once removed. My parents and sister are from uh, the Bronx and Brooklyn and those areas. So I kind of have it in me a little bit, although I grew up in Los Angeles. So, sure. yeah. Um, great. Well, ready to roll into some questions? Sure, sure. All right. Uh, Let's start way back. You know, how did you first get the music bug and then also the the writing bug? Well, uh, the writing thing, my mother was someone who was really interested in uh, education and reading. Um, I had a very profound thing that happened in first grade. Uh, We had a teacher who was kind of a retiring teacher. She was sort of taking our class, but she wasn't, she was at a coasting through. And by the time I went to first grade, my mother had really already my ABCs. I was identifying words. So I was a little bit more advanced. She got livid at the fact that this teacher was really moving us forward. I went to complain uh, at the school. She ran into a uh, substitute teacher, and they befriended each other. And uh, long story short, that path led my mother to becoming a teacher. Uh, and so I grew up in a house uh, where I was studying, you know, in elementary school, but my mother was going to night school at Brooklyn College here in New York. And so the house was full of not only my textbooks, but also her books. So I had access to things like uh, Hemingway, um, Fitzgerald. I mean, I remember picking up a copy of uh, James Joyce's Dubliners when I was like about eight or nine. Um, so all of this stuff was happening in, in terms of the literature and reading. Same time, my mother loved, was a soul music fan. She was a woman in her, I guess, late 20s, early 30s during this time. So she used to have Friday, Saturday night parties. Uh, and there would be the stacks of 45s on the 45 changer. And I would look over and watch the 45s plop down. And um, I kind of got a strange little geography lesson from that because I'd read the thing, oh, Motown that says Detroit, Michigan. Stacks that says uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, so, you know, it's strangely, I look back at it now and I, I, I identified the music with different cities because I would read the little liners on the bottom, you know, underneath. So that was, so, so the two things are happening. I have the reading thing happening and the beginning of the writing. And then I have this whole, um, 
sort of interest in music kind of based on the, the music that was in the environment. And so as I got to be an adolescent, uh, the two things sort of coming together. I started reading Rolling Stone, uh, The Village Voice, which had the great music section. Um, and just, you know, the sort of black teen magazines uh, that would write on and uh, they called Black Beat, which I ended up writing four years later, sort of a black teen magazine. Uh, so all these things started sort of coming together during my teenage years. And um, uh, when I was in college, I had a, had a big moment. So I go to see a show at Beacon Theater. It's Larry Graham, Graham Central Station is the headliner. And about four or five rows in front of me, there's a guy with a pen and a notepad, and he's got like a, like a light bulb and his pen. So he's, ah, a music critic. So I follow him outside of the theater, and said, yo, I'm a, I'm a college student. Um, I'm, I write stuff in my school newspaper. And his name was Robert Rocky Ford. And he eventually became kind of my mentor. So they're taking me with them to, uh, to uh, parties, press parties, uh, concerts. Eventually, uh, I ended up becoming an intern at Billboard magazine uh, when I'm in college. And this is uh, 77, 78, my sophomore or junior year. At the same time, I've already sort of started an internship at a place called the Amsterdam News, which is uh, was still is Black Weekly newspaper in New York. So I had this dual experience where I was um, going to school during the day, then I would take a subway to Harlem to the Amsterdam News and work there, and then I would go down to Times Square where Billboard was on 45th and Broadway, and you know scrounge up free records and cassettes and whatever. And eventually I began getting tickets to go review stuff. Um, so the, so all these things were, you know, kind of a product of just being a very curious college student, being very forward, you know, being willing to ask for, you know, who's doing that, I'm willing to do that. So uh, I ended, I mean, I, I, to give an example of what the kind of stuff Billboard would send me to do, um, I saw, you know, first choice disco group at a gay disco uh, on the west side of Manhattan at a club called Les Mouches. I also saw a double, uh, I also saw Ted Nugent with ACDC opening at Madison Square Garden. This is with the same week. So basically no one wanted to review disco and no one wanted to review heavy metal. Send a kid. And that's how I, and, and that, I got a lot of my experience, you know, writing about it and experiencing the parts of uh, pop music that no one, that would be extremes. Uh, so by the time I got around to get some choice, uh, you know, the Aretha Franklin's and Earth and the Fire shows, I was really happy. <laughs> what, um, were you into music to the extent that you were, you know, like me, I'm a bit of a frustrated singer, you know, I can't sing and I couldn't play that well. So I really gravitated towards, you know, other things I could do with music. Did that apply to you at all? Yeah, I was, I was a bad musician. Um, bad at piano. I, was, I studied, was studying piano initially, but I got seduced by the Curious George books at the, the home of a music teacher. So I never anywhere. I was in the glee club for a minute, but they got up too early to have rehearsal. I took violin for a minute. The only instrument I got any kind of sound out of was baritone horn, which is not an instrument that has a lot of utility in pop music. So uh, I never quite made it as a, as a, as a musician uh, at all. So the, the writing about it became more, became an organic transition. 
Well, so in your teens, you know, mid, late teens, who are some of your personal favorites that you were listening to? Uh, um, Earth and Fire was uh, amazing. I'm to, I got a chance to see them at the Garden a few times. An unbelievable band. Just so amazing. Best, one of the best live shows still to this day I've ever seen. Um, I like Bob Dylan. I remember the Blood on the Tracks album came out, and that was a big album for me in terms of uh, beginning to understand an album as an album experience mm -hmm. and that kind of songwriting. Uh, Coltrane's uh, Coltrane and Miles, I gravitated to the, both of them. So uh, I was really open. I, I think those I would say those groups, those individuals. Um, my friends and I in college uh, would go down to a place called JNR Music World, which was uh, right by City Hall, and uh, it was spread out of, around a few a few storefronts uh, across from City Hall in New York. And we would go in, and I would take my allowance money, and um, I would read books about music. So I'd read Grill Marcus's Mystery Train or uh, something in The Voice by Gary Giddens or or, or Chris Gow, Robert Chris Gow. And that would lead me to experiment. And I would buy a lot of 199 and 299 records that were they were called cutouts. So on my you know my allowance, I could grab three or four records. So I would say I was very curious, and I, I would try and find the records that were considered great or considered important, and try and listen to them to figure out you know okay this is what's important. Why is this you know an important record? Um, I remember uh, one of the records that really uh, transported me was one that Grill Marcus writes about in his book, his great book, Mystery Train. He writes about Robert Johnson. And I remember I'd never really heard of Robert Johnson. And so I bought uh, that one album that existed uh, of Robert Johnson's and um, uh, put, you know, you know, hair stood on the back of my neck. It was amazing, haunting, powerful stuff. So though I had favorites, I was very, I was very open to listen to almost anything um, and try, you know, just trying to expand my knowledge. Mm -hmm. I remember that JNR Music World, I only knew it because I used to get the catalogs all the time and would just, uh, you know, sal salivate over what was in those catalogs. Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing spot. It was a rat maze. It was, uh, there was like one, it wasn't this one building, at least at first. It got, it, years later, it got to be a big building, but it was a series of sort of storefronts and one would be, you know, jazz, and mine would be classical. And then others would you know, have a mix of pop music of different kinds. So you would go in and sort of scamper around in one and get something and go to the next one. Uh, and so that was a big part of the ritual of, of you know, there were no, uh, I mean, Sam Goodies was around. And this is, this is really before Tower Records is in Manhattan. Um, so that was a very big destination uh, in the, I would say all through the seventies uh, I think in the 80s is when the superstars started popping in, you know, the, uh, what's that, uh, Crazy Eddie and all that stuff starts happening later. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you got the gig with Record World, you know, how, how did that happen and, and what places did that take you to? Well, uh, what happened is that uh, I've been freelancing, you know, as a college student for Billboard. Uh, and so I, was, I covered a lot of trade stuff, not just music stuff. And then there was a change of uh, leadership, or I, I had somehow I, I had a falling out with some of the leaders. Because Billboard had an office in New York and LA. The New York 
folks, I was like their mascot. The LA people didn't really like me, apparently. Uh, who's this kid? Blah, blah, blah. And so uh, they, they kind of stopped me. I got, at one point, I got stopped from writing for the magazine. I think I, I, think I misspelled Joe Zawinul's name um, in a review. So boom, uh, I was home. It was Christmas 80. And I got a phone call from Record World Magazine that their black music or R&B or editor was, was moving on. And I remember going in to have an interview with them in um, November, December of 80. I got the call, I had the job, and I was gonna start uh, January 14th, 1981. And the first interview I did that day, I actually had a gig that day, I went to interview Prince. Wow. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, it was a way to start. It was ironic, I don't know if I mentioned, you know about the book, The Nelson George Reader? Uh, no. So I have a book out, uh, a sort of independently uh, produced called The Nelson George Reader. That's the Nelson George mixtape. I can't even pronounce my own book. So the Nelson George mixtape is on an independent publisher called Pacific Books out of Brooklyn. And uh, what's interesting is that that interview with Prince is in there. So the book is is full of a lot of my early, early writings from 1977, 78, 79, 80. And the Prince interview is in there. And I didn't forget, I went over to um, some hotel on um, the east side. I'd seen, oh, so the story goes, I'd seen Prince when I was in college. He played a gig at a, the Bottom Line, great venue in New York. Um, in, sort of in between his second and third album, before Dirty Mind comes out. So I went with a bunch of my college friends, because it was like, Prince was kind of a college hip thing to be into at that time. And, uh, but we didn't really know, we'd heard the first two, which were more kind of progressive R&B albums. You know, Dirty Mind, he really makes his leap into New Wave, and also to very kind of provocative lyrics. So we go see Prince and he's, uh, you've got the bikini underwear on and the trench coat, uh, bandana. We've just been never seen anything like him. He just knocks our ass, he's just amazing. And is it sexually ambiguous? All the stuff is going on. So then um, I, uh, I got a chance to interview him, ironically, you know, within, in just getting my first gig, really. And uh, as a result, I remember sitting with him. Number one, I'll show you. Actually, this is it. You can see this. It's called The Real Reality of Princess Music. <laughs> and that's the article from, uh, this is from January 24th, 1981. It came out. Wow. Um, and this is the book, so the Nelson George mixtape. So uh, that, he was tiny, number one. I had no idea. You, you know, from stage, you, you look pretty good size if you're on stage, he had high heels on. He's tiny, had a very deep speaking voice, much, uh, which was very different from what you expected based on his record, where he sang in his falsetto. Um, he sat there, he was very mysterious, um, incredibly intense eyes in terms of kind of boring into you. Uh, and he just talked about, I remember this phrase, I, young people will get the real reality of my lyrics. Um, and so I, after that, interesting enough, I ended up having a sort of a loose relationship with him for a while. Um, when he came to New York to do Saturday Night Live for the first time, I just happened to be at a restaurant having lunch with someone else. And um, he was there having lunch. 
and they invited me to go to uh, the Saturday Night Live show. So I was at that that taping, which I guess was I think must have been either. He did party up, so I may, it might have been late '81 or even '82. Um, yeah, probably '81. Yeah, it did, so it's later that year, and uh, I had a lot of encounters with him over the years, especially during those those eighty years. So that was the beginning, and you know, I started with Prince, and so he can't get worse than that. Wow, but just so I get my timelines uh, straight, so your name was appearing in Billboard before Record World when you were yeah. doing, yeah, yeah, because. I was sure I had seen you in there before then, and then when I looked at the timeline of the record world and then Billboard, it was confusing to me a little bit. Yeah, because I was like I said, I was your mascot. Um, I was hoping to find anything. Also, oh, like these are Billboard talent and action reviews. I did. Yeah. I mean, uh, so even this is from what year is this? This is from like nineteen seventy, October twentieth, nineteen seventy nine. I reviewed Earth, Wind, and Fire at the Garden and Sissy Houston, Whitney's mother. Uh, actually, at Les Mouches, which was the gay disco I mentioned to you earlier. So I was doing this kind of talent review stuff for the Billboard up until um, up until '80, and then I got the axe, um, major transition to Record World, and I was at Record World until they went they went out of business in the spring of '82. So I was there for about a year and a half, year and a half or so, almost. Um, and then, ironically, or lucky for me, when I was uh, asked trying to figure out what my next move was, uh, Billboard was apparently about to let go of their black music editor. And because I had been, oh, here's what happened: the people at the, in the New York office who who, who sort of raised me, if you will, got, uh, Adam White, who was then the head, who had been an editor, now became head editor of Billboard. And so, because I was like the mascot of the New York office, they brought me back in 82. And so I was there, I had Adam, uh, a guy named Roman Kozak was a talent editor. It was a great group of people uh, who really sort of um, taught me the music business, helped me with my writing. You know, they, they were like, they really took me in. And so I was there for seven years after that. Well, and I mean, viewers and listeners need to know that at that time, I mean, Billboard came out every week, and it was the Bible. There was no internet. There wasn't yeah. a whole lot else, especially for black music. And yes. so, um, you know, people like me, I mean, it was the gospel. You know, you looked forward to it every week. And I used to love looking at the charts, the whole thing. I mean, for me, yeah, it was lover. a great, great time, man, because uh, you would come in. I think my column was due. What was my column due? I think McConnell was doing Tuesday or something like that. So Monday, every Monday was a big day for me. Uh, I would come in to Manhattan. Initially, uh, I was living in Queens, and I got an apartment in Brooklyn. I'd come in. There'd be tons of press releases. There'd be tons of uh, new new vinyl. Uh, I would find find a story, either an, a thread, an essay thread. You'd look at a bunch of records, and there might be a trend going on or you interview an artist or, or executive. Um, and then I would do a thing called short stuff, which I really love, which is basically short bits about all this music. And, you know, back then, there's a ton of vinyl coming. So, um, you know, who had a hot record or what producer was writing a lot of stuff? There's a new songwriter who's really becoming very popular. Or there's a trend, uh, there's this house music coming out of Chicago. You know, whatever 
it was sort of a hodgepodge, trying to, in a way, you know, what you, that would be a blog, I guess. But something that really kept a, a, a track of the, the, as you say, there wasn't a lot of places for a lot of information about black music. Mm-hmm. So uh, it became a very important thing for people in the industry in terms of getting their stories out. And that was, yeah. yeah, it was called the, I called the column The Rhythm and the Blues. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And did they uh, tamper much with what you wanted to do, or did they let you have free reign pretty much? No, Adam and the whole staff was really open. Um, Adam went on to, uh, was also a scholar on R&B himself, and has actually written several books uh, in the last few years since he went back to England. Uh, so he was very supportive of, of the work in terms of what we try, I was trying to do with black music. Um, and actually, you know, my first, I did a Michael Jackson quickie bio in 84, uh, which sold a ton of copies because I was part of, I became part of that trend. Uh, and uh, that was a big thing. That happened while I was at Billboard. And then as I began trying to write deeper books, uh, my, the Motown book, uh, Where I Love Go, and then the Death of the Blues later, uh, they were very supportive. I never really, I would only miss a column if I was out of town. And often I would have a guest, I would either pre-write a column or have a guest. Because uh, I, I spent a lot of time going to uh, L.A., obviously, but also Detroit mm-hmm. um, during that time. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a really great environment for me. They really took, looked after me and protected me. So, I mean, and you were there, uh, Nelson, through so many key trends in, in black music. I mean, with, uh, you know, the changing of the guard from funk to disco and then sort of like more, you know, pop R&B and then the music videos coming in and all those changes that went on also with the industry itself. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time because the world that, uh, uh, you know, I, when I started at Record World in 81, if you want to go back to my billboard to, to 79, you know, 78, to when I left billboard in 98, uh, excuse me, 89, uh, just, you know, I, I think the biggest change to me, what happened with the music was was the elect- the, the uh, computerization and elect- electronics. Um, when I started, it was all about bands like Earth and Fire and P Funk and the Commodores and great rhythm sections, you know, um, on all these great bands. And the transition happened while I was there from a live rhythm section, you know, sometimes eight or nine, eleven piece bands, live horns. By the time I was um, left in 89, they were already really dying out. The big bands were. And people were, you know, there were three men. So Cameo is a great example. Cameo was a huge band. It was like 13 guys in that band at one point. By the end of the decade, Cameo was a three-piece band. By the end of the 80s, Urban and Fire was basically four people. Um, Lana Ritchie had ditched the Commodores and was a solo artist. Um, you know, the horns, the live horns got replaced by keyboard patches. Um, live drummers got replaced by the Lynn drum or the 808. Um, so all of that stuff happening in terms of what was, the, so literally the sound of, of mainstream R&B. I mean, I, I, he's a great, the perfect example is at the beginning of the decade, Gamblin' Huff, of the great you know, songwriter teams, and they use a big orchestra, MFSB. You know, by 89, 88, you had people like, you know, Jimmy and Terry, 
in Jimmy Jam and, and Terry Lewis, who basically are two-man bands, who, who basically do all of the instrumentation on their albums. Um, and, that, and that's how that transition happens. That was huge, you know, just in terms of that and that. Uh, and then I say the other thing would be, for me, was, you know, the beginnings uh, of hip-hop as a, as a force, uh, you know, starting, I, I was around it, writing about it as a kid as early as 78. Uh, I did a big article on uh, Cool Herc, uh, sort of one of the great early DJs, going back to, uh, this is an article from uh, the Amsterdam News in, in July 1978. DJ Herc and his B-Beats. Saw him in a park in the Bronx uh, that, that summer. And people so, should know that that's like a year before Rapper's Delight. Yes, that's a year before Rapper's Delight. Yeah. So that's the summer of July. And so, you know, by 89, there's, there's, it's a, you know, there's Run DMC's been a big hit. 89, you know, you have the Beastie Boys, MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice. So it's going pop. Not just, it's not just a genre, it's going pop in a big way. Um, uh, the great bands on Def, Def Jam, like uh, Public Enemy and Slick Rick. There's so much going on. It's, it's a burgeoning art form. Um, by then, it's, it's part of what a lot of hip hop people call a golden age. So uh, that's a huge, those two things, the, elect, the electronic takeover, if you will, of mainstream R&B, and then uh, hip hop's uh, rise into new youth music. You know, those two things, um, in retrospect, were the dominant threads. You know, you had Prince and you had Michael Jackson, you had Whitney Houston, you had a lot of big stars. But in terms of the overall trends and the culture of black music, I think those are the two big ones. Yeah, and unfortunately, not too many had the talent to do that as well as Prince, you know, right. to, to do what he did with using keyboards instead of horns and using drum machines and all that. I mean, he did it so well, but a lot of them didn't do it so well. No, there's a lot of very, very I mean, you can go back now. I was listening to some um, 80s music, and uh, there's some really obnoxious drum sounds, really bad, that don't, that don't translate. It's interesting because you can probably take a 22-year-old kid now and play them something from Curtis Mayfield in the 70s or Marvin or Stevie and the organic soul stuff with, you know, the, the, I mean, you might have electric piano, you might have some you know, synthesized instruments, right? But it's, it's still a very organic sound. A lot of records from the 80s, I bet you, won't translate right now as well uh, because they seem very synthetic. And a lot of what's going on with a lot of uh, contemporary pop music seems to me to be a return to, um, there's a 70s vibe, there's a disco vibe, there's an early 80s vibe to some degree. Um, and you, you know, you've had people like Bruno Mars and, and so forth bringing some of that, that, those funkier sounds uh, onto the pop charts. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, even the, the new single, the big hit single from uh, The Weeknd, uh, Heartless, sounds very new wave to me. You know? <laughs> so a lot of those uh, 80s sounds, early 80s sounds, uh, are, are around in the pop conversation now, the way some of the late, later 80s sounds aren't. Yeah. So... I want to move on from um, the 80s period with you, but before I do, I wanted to ask you from, from that you know, period of time, what would you say are the top one or two? I mean, interviewing Prince is pretty amazing, 
But was there one or two other just incredible memories that stand out for you during that period? I went. To, I saw the Victory Tour with Michael Jackson three times. I was at the opening night in Kansas City, and then I saw the show again at Giant Stadium, and then one more time at um, at the Garden toward the end. And uh, it was quite the the Kansas City thing was just such a phenomenon because Michael was so big then. But the Giant Stadium show that I saw during that tour was the, an amazing. That was Michael at his peak as a showman. Uh, it was just an amazing, the power he had. Um, and, the, you know, just the charisma. Um, man, uh, I saw Prince quite a bit. I was very fortunate to see Prince from very little venues to arenas. So watching his journey was really profound. Um, I went, I saw Whitney Houston's one of, I don't know if it was her first show. I, Whitney was someone who sang around New York a lot with her mother as a background at first. And then she began playing, as she was starting shopping a record deal in the early 80s, you could see Whitney at some of the little clubs in New York kind of doing showcase gigs. Um, so I saw her quite a bit um, before she became what she became. And then um, I would Did, say... Uh, let me just ask you before uh, on that, on Whitney, how much more raw and soulful was she at the beginning versus what they produced her into? Well, she's an interesting case because uh, she... Her taste in actual pop music was a little bit more mainstream than people. I mean, she could holler, but she also, you know, her her cousin, I think it's her cousin or her aunt, was uh, Dionne Warwick. And so she had a taste for that Burt Backrack smoothed out stuff. In fact, we had a whole argument. Me and her had a very interesting relationship because I met her again when she was young. And then I wrote, I, I was not always a fan of some of the, Material, she, she sang. And so we had a couple of, uh, uh, I wouldn't say run-ins, but we had some funny moments. I did a big interview with her for Playboy, actually, that's also in the Nelson George mixtape book. And um, she kind of, I, I thought, I used to think that Clyde Davis made her sing those songs. But over time, it, it really came to me that she and her mother, I think it's a very important part. Her mother, Sissy, had been you know, a great background singer, had sang with Aretha, had sang with Elvis, you know, had, had been one of the sweet inspirations. And her mother was very, very aware of the, what she called the, you know, the R&B chitlin circuit. And she did not want Whitney to be in that, she wanted Whitney to somehow get out of that box as she saw it. Mm -hmm. So I used to think, I, I, in retrospect, I realize now that those choices were somewhat tasted, somewhat calculated. But it wasn't just Clive imposing them on her. Hmm. She and her mother were very much participants in the decision about the direction to go with that reason. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, that makes it, uh, I don't know, I can respect it more, that knowing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really know that at the time. And I was, you know, but uh, <clears throat> I went back and looked at some of the stuff. And then in uh, one of the docs uh, that were made about Whitney, Sissy is very explicit about about that. Um, so yeah, so 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 Whitney was definitely seeing her ascension. Uh, and then I have a number of you know hip hop related memories. Um, uh, the probably the most favorite is uh, the famous show when the when DC was headlining the Garden in the mid '80s, and they you know they're already on their way, and they have the song My Adidas out, mm -hmm. and. Uh, 
they invited some executives from Adidas in Germany to come to the show. And at one point, they have everyone who has their Adidas to hold them up in the air. And they, you know, there's, a, there's a sea of Adidas shell toe shoes held up at Madison Square Garden. And that's how Run DMC got their, their big Adidas deal. <laughs> wow. I was at uh, a tour of theirs that was memorable, but for another reason. It was around the same time, but I was at the show at the Long Beach Arena. Oh, you were there. I was there. Yeah. Can you, t- you want to tell people about that? What? what? <laughs> you want to tell people what happened there? Oh, there was a riot before Run DMC ever came on, and yeah. uh, my friends and I were huddled underneath the uh, bleachers, fearing for our lives, because uh, the gangs decided to take over the venue, basically. Oh, you were there, man. I, so I have a... So, uh, I got a phone call from uh, either Russell Simmons or Bill Adler. Bill was their, Russell, obviously Russell was their manager, but Bill Adler, I think, was head of publicity for them. That night before, the night after, or that happened that night. So that night I get a phone call and that they're going to go on um, TBS Morning News, running see to talk about that. I remember going and doing an interview that next morning. It's one of the first times I ever did national TV, I think. Uh, about what had happened, about you know how 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 implicated was hip hop in that? So that's one of the most famous events uh, in hip hop history. It was. It was a black guy for a while. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was Houdini, the Beastie Boys, LL, and Run DMC. And uh, I've heard many stories from the other side about. Basically, as I understand the story now, it was two different gangs that had their. I thought meeting. it was the Crips and the Bloods. <laughs> I'm not sure, but that's what I heard. Yeah. And they decided to have a meeting yeah, at the yeah. Run DMC show. You could see uh, it escalating where I was sitting. It yeah. just kept escalating around the whole venue. You know? Wow. And then when we were going out to our cars finally, I mean, people were going in their trunks and pulling out weapons, and it was just bedlam, man. Well, and that, you know, and that was and that's interesting because that, that, was, that became a big challenge throughout hip-hop's. As it went into the stadium, you know, getting insurance getting bookings, and that really was a huge black eye for the music. Even though, really, the music, it wasn't about the music, it was about the gangs. But, and, that, and that's sort of where that whole um, conflict, mixing of, of rap and gangs violence begins, you know, become part of the popular narrative about the music. So, so I'm glad you survived it, man. That was some real <laughs> shit there. I'm glad, too. But, uh, yeah, they didn't give any refunds either, even though... Um, they never made it to the headliner. <laughs> That's good. Uh, who who found, who did you who was the last person on stage when it started happening? I think LL. Uh, I I think I pretty much everybody uh, except for Run DMC. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> you have the ticket stub still? Uh, that I'm not sure of. That'd be a good one. That would be a good That's... one. I'm just glad I have my life, like you said. Yeah, man. <laughs> that was a serious throwdown. Yeah. <laughs> 